are now listening to The Big Tide with Peter Finn. Enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. So I'm here with John Perkins, the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman. It's great to finally have you come on to the Big Trade Series, John. So wonderful to be with you, Peter. Well, your book's been around for some time. People have heard of it. There's a lot of current events. I love to get into it because it's a topic of interest to me right now is, do you have any additional insight about, like, say, for example, some of the things that you discuss about in your book? in regards to what's happening with these Panama uh, files that are being leaked. We're clearly starting to understand how some companies are structured, some individuals are um, set up as well. I mean, have, have you been paying attention to this? And is it giving you some additional perspective or confirmations of some of the things you discuss about in the book? Absolutely. Uh, all, all of the above. I've been paying attention and it, it does confirm so much of what I say in the book. You know, I, I wrote the new Confessions of an Economic Hitman 12 years after the original was published. Right. And I wrote it mainly because things have just changed so much. In, in, in one respect, things have gotten much worse. The economic hitman system has spread from the developing countries to the United States, Europe, and the rest of the world. And on the other hand, people are waking up to the fact that, that we've really created an economy that's not working. I, I a lot of economists refer to it as a death economy. It's an economy that's essentially consuming itself into extinction, you know, eating up all the resources that it needs, mm -hmm. that it depends upon, and also to a large degree is, is based on uh, militarization. Uh, and so it's really a death economy, and we need to create a life economy that, that actually is based on cleaning up pollution and restoring and regenerating the destroyed areas and creating new technologies that, that don't rip up the earth anymore, that recycle and use the sun, etc. So the Panama Papers and other revelations that are coming out now really undermine how, how much worse the system's gotten. Uh, and again, it, and, and the fact that the papers are coming out, the fact that there's so much information coming is coming out underlines the fact that people really are waking up to the that the, that the information is getting out there, that the system isn't working, that the people who have made the biggest mistakes, who have committed crimes, sometimes they're actually legal, so, so legally speaking, they're not crimes, but should be crimes. The big bankers, the, the, the very wealthy, are getting away with things that they should never get away with, avoiding paying taxes, and so many other things. Right. Now, is there anything, like any particular cases through your observation of what's happening that really, you know, rings the bell in, in terms of what we're discussing about? Or is this more about like just a general observation that you have right now? Well, there's a lot of specific cases. Um, you know, and I, I discuss these in detail in the New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. One very blatant one, of course, is that some of the, the world's biggest banks have recently paid fines of over $25 billion dollars They've admitted that they've, that they've committed crimes mm -hmm. by rigging the exchange rates, the LIBOR rates, the interest rates of banks, things that impact all of us and have been impacting us for a couple of decades. $25 billion in fines, but not a single banker has been indicted. Uh, recently, there's talk of indicting one person. Uh, but, you know, you've you got to ask yourself, do banks commit crimes? No. 
individuals in the bank commit crimes. These individuals not only are getting off scot-free, uh, but they're uh, paying themselves huge bonuses at the same time that they're admitting that they they're essentially admitting that they've created crimes, but they're not being held responsible. And the things like the Panama Papers show how many people are getting away without paying taxes. Big corporations, you know, that, that, that benefit from all of the infrastructure, the, the schools, the fire departments, the police departments, the highways, the ports, the airports, they're not paying for them. You and I are paying for them. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Right, right. On that very subject, because I, I try to uh, be as agnostic to, you know, a particular political paradigm or social economic paradigm to, to some extent. And, and I, I would almost argue with you, John, and, and I would say, for example, look, through the exposure of this information, it actually might become more difficult for one to want to be able to think about creating multinational entities as opposed to, you know, um, indicting them for all the negative aspects of them. One probably would say, okay, so it's so hard for us to change the tide on something like this. And we do recognize that there seems to be a massive wealth disparity that's, that's happening around the world. But, you know, what lessons can we learn? Like you're saying, like, for example, you and I are the ones that have to think about the implications of paying taxes, and that's understood. But then again, you and I are also able to create, for example, these kinds of instruments and products that could allow us to act or replicate like some of these, say, multinational companies to an extent, and therefore be able to create some wealth uh, and, and prosper from that. I'm not, I'm not referring to all the, you know, the things that are considered negative for what people are doing, but, you know, how about the ability to play similarly like the big boys are playing, but be able to also benefit from that by creating, you know, positive wealth creating businesses there's there's really no I, i'd imagine there's no real uh, crime or legal implications for apple or google to be structured the way that they are they're you know they're running businesses and yeah there's there's some frustrations about repatriation of capital but you know what are your thoughts about that because I, I i try to you know like i try to be pragmatic about this um how we can just kind of adapt to the kind of world there is and and by having these kind of capital controls and restrictions, it might be actually impeding for, for one to do something like this. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, well Peter, I, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the New Confessions of an Economic Hitman is because there were so many books out there. And I've got a lot of friends who are great authors and economists who constantly just criticize the system. Right. Uh, I'm a capitalist. Yes. And, and, but I believe that we've created a form of capitalism that isn't working. I'm yeah. a pragmatist too. I want to see it work. Right. I totally, I totally want to see entrepreneurs come along and have incentives to create new things, yeah. whether they work for big corporations or just to have, have, have their own startups. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, there's absolutely no reason why these people and, and the companies they create shouldn't be paying their fair share for the services that they're getting. Mm -hmm. And that's what that's theoretically what taxes do. We have an unfair tax system in, in this country, I think, also because it's put so, it puts so much money, more than 50 cents of every one of our dollars goes toward the military complex. Right. I, think that's a, I think that's a mistake. I think that money should go to other things. Mm -hmm. but, but nonetheless, we should all pay our taxes. And so, yes, I totally encourage capitalism. I encourage 
young people to come along and be entrepreneurs, and whether, again, whether they do it on their own or for a big corporation, but they also should pay their fair share for the services that they're getting, the schools, the, 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 you know, as I mentioned before, the airports, the, the police, the, so on and so forth. All of the services that our taxes pay for, mm-hmm. uh, the, the rich should not be exempt from that. In, in fact, you know, the, the, the rich usually make their money off using these services, and so therefore they ought to pay uh, an equal amount, an amount that's, that's, that's equal to what the, the, the benefits that they receive. And, and that's why we have a graduated income tax. That's that's the real theory behind it. It's not just that we think it's not a Robin Hood thing that you just need to tax the rich because they're rich. Mm-hmm. No, you tax tax you tax the rich higher because you assume that they're getting more benefits off the system, which on almost any case you can demonstrate that that's true. Right, right. As, as I said, it like I'm I'm pretty open to all sorts of ideas and suggestions like that. I I guess my whole point is as as opposed to you know uh, being concerned about some of those issues, I would want to think about like okay, we live in a knowledge based economy, right? And if for whatever reason the rich have this information of what they can and cannot do, say even if they're paying their taxes, but they're they're able to construct. You know certain kind of entities and organizations uh, as as plutocrats and technocrats. I would argue that we all should try to understand, and I think that's what your book does: is it shines lights and and the Panama leaks actually shine a little bit of light on what they're doing. And I think that there's a lot of knowledge to be obtained in understanding how they're structured, how they, as you indicated, it's the people that are running the corporations, and it's how they utilize those. That will determine if, for example, you know what they're doing is good or bad. But if I can understand how, like, the global banking system works, I am in an advantageous position. It's unfortunate that the the rich people will have that access to, like, the lawyers, advisors that might be able to provide that to them. Whereas, you know, the average Joe is thinking about where he's getting his his next meal, for example. So that I think that's the one un, unfortunate thing. But I, I would, you know, encourage people to understand concepts and ideas like your book understand you know the global banking system kind of like decode what's happening in in those panama leaks just to have a greater understanding so um just switching uh, topics a little bit is like you know i've i've have a brief understanding of what you've indicated in your book you discuss about this this idea of being able to you know um, I'm in Asia, by the way, right now, and it's the idea of providing debt for some of these countries. On the surface, it could almost one could almost argue that hey, like these countries, they're kind of in need of additional capital and foreign investment. They need to develop infrastructure. They need um, you know multinational companies to provide them the tools they need to develop that infrastructure. Where in that line of thinking is detrimental? For example, assuming if it's an emerging or frontier economy, I understand that they're going to be put into debt by, by doing that. But what can it's, it's within the country's hand, I believe, right, to try to create as much value as possible through this investment and development of infrastructure. What, what are your thoughts there? And let me get to that second question just a moment, but, but okay. I'd like to make the, the, the earlier point a little clearer. I think a shining example of, of the misuse of, of taxes and so on is Walmart. 
Uh, the Walton family is one of the wealthiest families in the world. Mm -hmm. Walmart's a very successful company. Yeah. And you and I and all your listeners, all every taxpayer in the United States, well, and, and I guess you're reaching a lot of people that aren't in the United States. Yeah, but yeah. but um, we pay $6 billion a year to cover Walmart employees' health care. Well, the Walton family doesn't pay that. They, 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 they don't pay the taxes that go to that because they employ people for less than 30 hours, which means they don't have to put in money for workman's compensation and other uh, benefits that these people get. So, so the taxpayer pays. And that's an example of, of where the system really stinks. You know, Walmart should be paying for its employees to take care of its employees. You and I shouldn't. People go to Walmart, they think they're getting a good deal. In fact, they're not getting a very good deal because... The, the, they're having to pay later without knowing it this hidden cost to take care of employees that aren't being covered on the Walmart's plans. That's just one of many, many, many examples. Anyway, getting on to your, your other question about debt and which 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 country are you in, Peter? I'm right now in Vietnam. So, like you know, uh, Vietnam receive or actually craves for goodness sakes, or maybe that's for your your case. Your thesis is that um, you become addicted to it, but basically. Uh, you know, foreign direct investment is a very big issue, and being able to raise corporate debt is a big issue. I guess, you know, you you would argue that this is a country that is striving post-war, right, to try to become a player within the global economic community. And and I, definitely later we're going to talk about TPP as well. But but yeah, that's a that gives you a, a case example of of what I'm kind of referring to. Yeah, and, and I was just in Vietnam recently, and, you know, Vietnam's an amazing thing. It's, it, you know, here, here's a country that we all said if the North won the war, the, the domino effect, they would, they would start to take over the world. The opposite's happened, and they've become, in a way, much more capitalistic than the United States is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're a model of democracy, in a, in a, in a, I mean, of, of capitalism, in a way. Uh, well, debt, it, what, what I'm opposed to is, is debt that puts huge restrictions on people that they can't get out of, and it's used to enslave uh, countries right. or individuals. Uh, and, you know, an example is, is most countries today that take loans from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations have to agree to privatize their water system right. and sell it to our, to big international corporations mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, like, like Coca-Cola and, right. and Nestle. I, I think that's a terrible mistake. I think that's horrible that, that you know, to, to take on this debt, to get one of these loans, mm -hmm. the country has to agree to sell off its water system to an international corporation. And we all know that water is becoming the next oil. It's, it's, right. it's, it's going to be a huge, valuable, limited, scarce resource. And the big corporations are taking over because the World Bank is collaborating with them. Right. And, right. and that's one example that I think is a huge mistake. The debt should not be used to enslave countries. Yes, we can use it in positive ways. Uh, limited amounts of it to, to help countries move forward. Unfortunately, my history is one and that, that reflects this other use of debt, which is to put countries in a position where they can't pay it off, and therefore at some point we can go back and, and demand conditionalities. Or, as I just mentioned in the case of the World Bank, they won't even get the debt, they won't even get the loans unless they agree to these conditionalities ahead of time, which usually favor big international corporations at the right. expense of the people of the country. Well, well I, John, I once putting on a devil's advocate, I, I completely respect your opinion. 
my my question though is that like I've seen instances in some cases like in Asia where for example that capital then is deployed to state-owned enterprises and I could argue with you that hey I, I don't know if the state-owned enterprise is any better than the multinational corporation it's almost as if your your you know your your picks your your choices aren't the ideal choices but you know one could argue that is it I'm not saying the multinational is any like you know good, but I'm saying that perhaps it can be run a little bit more efficient in some instances. And and I because look, I I study state-owned enterprise balance sheets, and it, that, I could argue with you that they tend to be much more inefficient, and they don't even even achieve the objective of of like you know water engineering, for example, or come remotely close to that. And and ultimately, many people suffer. So. Have you thought about that perspective? Because in this real world that we live in, I think that those are the two, I guess, biggest choices for some of these emerging and frontier markets, either state-owned enterprise or some multinational corporation. I, I think I'd have to ask you, in theory, would you prefer to have your utilities and your water owned by civil, uh, run by civil servants, owned by you, run by civil servants whose whose fiduciary responsibility, whose obligation is to serve the specific, the public. Okay. Or would you rather have them owned and run by by corporate executives whose fiduciary responsibility is to make a few rich people richer? Yeah. yeah. Now, the answer, I think, is pretty obvious. <laughs> Within that, we need to recognize that many governments are corrupt uh, and, and, and sometimes very efficient. That can that can be solved in other ways. There's, there's ways to make the, these these governments and and the organizations that run them more efficient. Right. A lot of them are, a lot of them are very efficient. I've worked in a lot of places. You know, I've seen. Here's an example that that okay. the United States used that argument before turning the Panama Canal over the Pan, over to Panama right. uh, as a, a reason not to turn it over. Right. Uh, in fact, the Panama Canal has been run much more efficiently by the Panamanian or the Panamanians. Than it ever was by the Americans. All the statistics show this: fewer accidents, uh, fewer problems. The transit time is, has been reduced. Uh, much greater uh, revenues coming in. It's a much more efficient canal today than it was operated by the American mm-hmm. government or, or, or a quasi branch of the American government, the, the Panama Canal Company. Um, and, and there's lots of arguments like that. I think you know, the answer is let's you know, let those things that allow belong to the people belong to the people and be run by the people's representatives and make sure that those representatives are the best people to run the systems and that they're properly incented and, got, and watched to make sure that they, don't, that they don't run the systems corruptly and inefficiently. Yeah, like, you know, when you propose the question to me, I'm sitting here, I'm trying to postulate, like, what is, like, uh, you said the answer is obvious. I don't know. Like, I've, I've seen instances where the opposite is the case. Of course, you're going to find shining examples. But, um, you know, definitely food for thought. I don't know the answer to that. To be honest with you, John, I, I, I can look you in the eye and tell you, especially here in, like, Vietnam, for example, if you're running, you're, say, as a customer. Let's talk about a customer or consumer of a particular, like, based on the service, the quality, the efficiency, I, I really don't know. And, and it's, it's, it's sad, unfortunately. And I wish we could have what, what is it you don't know, Peter? Uh, I don't know what would be the, the optimum solution for something like that. Because, you know, there's... I, I, my question was, would you rather have the people, you, right. own those systems like water? Yeah, yeah. 
electricity and have them run by people who represent you. And I'm assuming that you can make those people represent you efficiently and, and without corruption, because I think that can happen. Yeah. Or would you rather have those systems owned and run by a foreign corporation whose officials only obligation is to make rich people richer and, and, and at your expense? Yeah. What I'm saying, John, is I, it's rare for me so far. Like I spent a lot of time here in Asia. It's rare to see examples like that. That, 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 that's, you're talking about, you asked a general question. I'm trying to give a general answer. <laughs> the, 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 the specifics are that then get Vietnam to clean up its government systems. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want this to be too much of a political conversation. Well, but let, yeah. me, let, me, let me give you another example. Okay. So, so a number of years ago, World Bank insisted that uh, the city of Cochabamba, Bolivia, sell its, its water system yes, to Bechtel. Yes, I'm very aware of that case, yes. Yeah, and Bechtel just set out to screw the people and, and increase the price sometimes like four times. Mm. Uh, and, and people couldn't, and, and Bechtel said, and even sent people uh, out to shut off water if people were, were taking rainwater. They said that they, even they own the rainwater. Right. And people and if people were using were collecting rainwater, then Bechtel would shut off their, their tap water. Right. And you know, it's one of the reasons that Evo Morales became president of, of Bolivia because he was one of the leaders in a movement to stop that and eventually Bechtel got out, left it because the people spoke loud and clear. But it was a shining example of how when a when a US corporation or a global corporation went in, uh, it, it, it its only interest was profits. Right. And that that's almost by definition the interest of these big corporations is to make to maximize their profits. Right. That, that is not the goal of government organizations. Now, I, I grant you, there's a lot of government organizations that don't work well and are corrupt, but there's shining examples of ones that do too. Yeah, like um, in the case of Bolivia, I'm sure you're much more of an expert than I am about that. The thing I know about Bolivia is that it is. Um, it's experienced, you know, a dichotomy of, of, you know, political and economic paradigms over a long period of time. And I, I still believe that the, the answer to, like, you know, what is the right approach for Bolivia, it's, it's still not very clear yet. Because I think ultimately, follow, the follow-up, the subsequent follow-up to your case example is that, you know, Bolivia is having a lot of, like, economic... Uh, uncertainty right now and it's it's a mess basically long story short I think we can agree on that that it is a mess and and the question is what are some of the solutions but um let, let's let's get back to this is a really fun conversation and what I enjoy about it is that we can have a very civil conversation about different ideas and concepts but um can can we talk about like what like what you've have done and and witnessed I, I'd love to get some perspective on that because you you entail that it's sort of a, a manuscript that that reflects like you know some autobiographical components in the book as well sure uh we, we've only got another five minutes or so I yeah, yeah sure. another call schedule but so can you be more specific um i mean like you've you've mentioned that you've actually dealt with as a role of a economic hitman is like you're you're involved with uh i guess a, discussing about the the merits of investment in particular countries and trying to work towards attracting that capital. And I guess you've highlighted that there's some sinister motives to that. Like what, can you give some like case examples of what you were involved with uh, for the interest of the audience? 
Yeah, I mean, this, uh, I go into detail in the new confessions of an economic hitman, but so uh, an example uh, would be, well, it's, I'll take one, Ecuador, yeah. uh, where, I was, where I was a Peace Corps volunteer and know the, knew the country well, and, but when I uh, became an economic hitman, Ecuador was ruled by a military junta dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And I went down, and other economic hitmen went down. We convinced that that, that junta to take huge loans uh, from the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, which were used primarily to hire big U.S. corporations, you know, the big construction companies, contractors, to build infrastructure projects in Ecuador that served Texaco, uh, mm-hmm. that was polluting, developing and polluting the oil in the, in the Amazon, and, and other big corporations. Uh, so these, these dictators took on these huge loans, and they and their families made a lot of money off them through all kinds of different forms of corruption. Some of it was legal, some of it wasn't. Uh, huge loans. And then in, in, the, in the late 70s, uh, they decided to try to return to democracy, and a candidate was elected named Jaime Roldos, who uh, ran on a platform of changing all of that and making sure that Texaco and, and other such companies uh, paid their workers a fair uh, salary, and also re- made sure that the Ecuadorian people uh, benefited from the profits that were made off of Ecuadorian oil. Right. At that point, I was sent down again to convince uh, President Roldos uh, not to follow through on his campaign policies, not to do these things. He also w- had, had, was going to double the minimum wage, right. uh, which, which would impact a lot of international corporations. I was sent down to convince him to change. He wouldn't change. He had tremendous integrity. Uh, he, he said, no, I've got to serve the people of my country. That's what I'm here to do, right. not, to take, not to take your bribes. And uh, he died in, a, in an airplane cr- crash that many, many people believe uh, was uh, CIA orchestrated. And there's a tremendous amount of evidence that points to that, that's, that's such as uh, the plane was maintained by U.S. military personnel. Uh, the area where it crashed was roped off and, and only U.S. investigators and a few highly selected Ecuadorian military personnel were allowed to go in. The local police were not allowed to go in. Uh, witnesses who saw the crash died before they were able to testify. This, this, this Swiss laboratory tested the engine and showed that it hadn't really it had been involved in a it was It crashed, but the engine went off before the crash, unlike the official story. On and on and on. Right. So uh, this is just one of, of many examples that I personally was involved in. Okay. It highlights the system that when we economic hitmen fail to, to uh, you know, get these countries to accept huge amounts of debts that come around to our way, uh, the next step is that what we call the jackals go in and either threaten governments or, or, over, or, or assassinate their leaders. And, you know, the, you can go to the CIA's website yeah. and see that they admit to their role in overthrowing in the overthrow of Allende of, of Chile. And, you know, it goes on and on. Yeah. So, John, I know that we have a little bit limited time, but one here's a here's a question. Like for any uh, critics that try to criticize you and try to indicate that you know if they say that hey, John's stories are complete fabrications, is there any kind of like substantial evidence that you have to demonstrate all of these escapades that you've been involved in? Like, is is there? something that you have that undoubtedly would indicate that, look, I was actually involved in all of these fascinating activities. And, and what, what would that be? Could you share that to the audience? Well, the, the New York Times vetted the first edition uh, okay. in 2005, 2006. Okay. 
very extensively and concluded that what I said was correct. Um, we know that the things all happened. We know that the little doses flame crashed and uh, right, right. various influences. The same with Omar Torrijos of Panama. You know, so every story that I tell in the book is, is backed up by facts. Uh, was I there? Did I do it? Well, I got a passport that shows I was there. I certainly can prove I worked for the Charles C. Maine. Can I actually prove that I ever, you know, that that I that I did some specifics? I, I don't. You know, certainly we didn't keep extensive records. When you try to bribe someone, you don't you don't make <laughs> records of it. We didn't have email in those days. Right. But I think that it's all been backed up. You know, I haven't heard anybody raise those issues for a very long time. When the book first came out, some of those issues were raised, but I think they've been pretty much put to rest. And in this new Confessions of an Economic Hitman, there's a whole final section of the book that's, that's all the last years of huge numbers of other references that do substantiate everything I, I say, and you can go right down through that and link to New York Times articles, to Time Magazine articles, to right. USA Today, and, 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 and on and on and on. There's a whole section of, of links that, that substantiate much of what I say. In fact, I would say probably 99% of what I say in the book is backed up by other sources at the end of the book. John, were you bound by any confidentiality when you were uh, participating in these activities besides just like, you know, um, the ethics of doing your, your job and making sure that you're doing it in the best interest of your employer, for example. But were you, were, was there like a clear like confidentiality where you were allowed to discuss this? And then, you know, at what period of time potentially did you feel like safe to discuss about it? Obviously, when you publish your book for the first time. Uh I, do, I did have to sign some confidentiality statements, uh, agreements for specific issues, specific tasks. Okay. And overall, I was told that, you know, once in, you know, you, you don't talk about these things. And, and I tell the, in the book about how uh, my life was threatened when I started to uh, publish the book, when I started to write about the book and, and, and spread the word that I wanted to talk to other people in this business. Mm. And I was also taken out to dinner by the chairman of the board of Stone and Webster, a, a major consulting firm that was a competitor of ours. And he said he'd like to use my resume. Now that I'd left the other company, my resume was chief economist. He'd like to use his proposals. I wouldn't have to do any work. And he was prepared to, and he did write me a check for half a million dollars. Just don't write the book. Oh. And so, you know, and, and I and I agreed to that. And But by the time I finally wrote the book, a number of years later, that agreement had ended. Okay. Uh, and my life was threatened. My daughter's life was threatened. I, I go into the details. And after the, the, the book was published, uh, about five months after that, uh, I was hospitalized for two weeks in New York and had 70% of my colon removed. And I go into detail in the book about how I believe I was poisoned. Wow. Uh, there's, there's a danger in this in, in spreading this, this, this kind of message. I think it's, it's minimized once the message is out there because if something suspicious happens to me, um, the book's going to sell a lot more copies. I'm going to be a martyr. Uh, <laughs> and that's exactly the opposite of what people want. Nonetheless, there's a risk. There's a risk that some people that really object to what I say that aren't real jackals, that aren't part of the system. I think the people that are part of the system are smart enough not to let anything happen to me unless they can do it in a way that's, that's beyond suspicion, which the poisoning was in a way. It was probably ground glass, which doesn't show up in your bloodstream, and so on. All the details are in the book, but... Yeah, there have been, been threats. I was threatened with a lawsuit by Bechtel Corporation, the Summer Institute of Linguistics, and others. 
Right. When we, when we produced uh, evidence of what I said was true, uh, those lawsuits went away. Uh, there's been a lot of repercussions, and, and I go into a lot more of that in the book, and also on my website at johnperkins.org. And, and John, one more, one more, because it's so interesting, is that has there, since the release of your book, at least the first edition of it, have you seen any kind of like implications? Like what, what's the after effects? I'm sure there are companies and individuals and countries that you implicate in this, um, you know, as a result of that information being public, were there any changes that have happened since you wrote that? Um, Rafael Correa, the democratically elected president of Ecuador, has waved the book around. He's, he endorsed my next book. He said this book is for the people of Ecuador. Uh, I've been told that in, in Morales of Bolivia has, has said similar things. Um, I've been told by a lot of people that's had a huge influence on them, some people in high positions. Recently met with an ambassador from Turkey uh, who told me that it had a huge influence on him. I hear this from business leaders. I'm invited to speak at big business summits, uh, which, is, which surprised me at first, but to find out then that the business executives understand that the current system's not working. They just want to understand how they can get out of it without losing their jobs, and so they asked me to come in and help them. Huh. Yeah, I hear, I hear a lot of very, very positive things. I, 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 I've, been, I've been told that, that, that Edward Snowden and Julian Assange were both... Uh, both positively affected by my book and it helped them decide to do what they did. Uh, so, you know, I don't know all of it, but I, but I get a lot of reports from a lot of people from very, very different positions uh, that this book has impacted them. And incidentally, uh, up until at least a year or so ago, it was one of the top-selling books at the bookstore at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. It was one of their all-time bestsellers. I haven't checked in the last couple of years, but I was there about three or four years ago. It was on there. Their shelf of their ten time, uh, ten most ten bestsellers of all time. <laughs> well, thank you, John, for coming on the Big Trade series. It's great to have you on. My pleasure. It's good to talk to you, Peter. Keep up your great work. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 